the glory of God, his reign, his power, his victory. That's what we've come here this morning to celebrate. That's what we've come here this morning to meditate upon and to to study about, is the, the victory that our God has accomplished through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter where you're at this morning, there is one great thing to know, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, God and his people win. Christ has conquered sin, death, and hell. And there's only safety in him. So as we're gathered here this morning, I pray for you specifically, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, that you will give fresh consideration today to the truth of the gospel, that God in Christ reconciles us to himself and has victory for us over sin, death, and hell. There is only defeat outside of Christ. Only defeat. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13, verses 17 to 22. Here at Four Corners, we go through texts of the, of the Bible. And typically, that means books, sometimes chunks of books. And we are going through Exodus. We've been here since around the 1st of March. And we are, we've now come to Exodus chapter 13. Over the last two weeks, we've been <coughs> looking at three Exodus ordinances, as I've called them. These are three observances that the Lord commands the people to keep as they are leaving Egypt. So uh, as God begins the exodus, as God begins to bring his people Israel, the Israelites, uh, two and a half million strong, out between two and two and two and a half million, out of Egypt, he gives them these, (coughs) these three ordinances. The Passover meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Consecration of the Firstborn. These ordinances function as memorials. So they they are commands, but they are meant to be memorials. They will help the people to remember God's saving power in the Exodus. In other words, these commands are a grace. Think about that. God is giving these commands to his people As he brings them out of Egypt and he is giving them to his people as an act of grace. They are given to keep the people in God's way for their own good. So I want you to think about this for a moment. How do you view God's commands in the Bible? As we think about this whole idea of obedience and submission to God. How do you understand God's commands as they come at you? As you read the scriptures, these commands coming at you one after the other. It is typical for us to speak of the indicative and the imperative. What God has done and then we act out of what God has done for us. That's absolutely true. But we tend to think of the indicative as God's grace. This is what God has done for us in Christ. There's the grace. And now we go and do Accordingly, we go sort of trudge through accordingly, always keeping in mind the indicative as we carry out the imperative. Uh, But it's deeper than that. It's richer than that. Grace is everywhere. Grace is in the indicative and grace is in the imperative. Do you see God's commands as his grace? 
His grace towards us to keep us on the way, to keep us in his hand, to keep our eyes fixed on his glory and grace. Today we move past these three ordinances on our way to the Red Sea. The Israelites have left Egypt. And today we come to a brief account of the first part of their journey. So the Exodus <coughs> text are sort of spread out. And today we come to the very beginning of that. Or not the very beginning. We've seen the first leg of the journey. That, that little trip we, when we looked at exiting Egypt. But now we come to the first big part of their journey. Israel is on the move. They are being led by Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. They are being led by the Lord. And we know that they are headed to the Red Sea crossing. And that tells us that there is more of God's saving power to be seen. We've already seen quite a bit of it. God protecting his people from the plagues. God working in Pharaoh's heart and in the people to lavish them with all of these blessings, the jewelry that they have, the clothing that they have. And then God's act of delivering them itself, the the act of bringing them out of Egypt. But there is more saving power yet to be seen. And that means, of course, that there is more judgment for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now just pause on that for a moment. In our sort of softy modern culture and our obliviousness oftentimes to the seriousness of sin and the depth of our depravity and the greatness of God's holiness. We might be tempted at this point to think, come on, God. Haven't the Egyptians had enough? I mean, nine plagues. And then the death of the firstborn of all the families in Egypt and the animals as well. I mean, hasn't God done enough? Maybe at this point you're you're sort of tempted to move in the direction of seeing God as as cruel or, or harsh or unjust. Not so. There is more judgment for Pharaoh and the Egyptians because of the judgment that they Deserve. And we recognize in that the judgment that we deserve. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to have come to a right understanding, not a full understanding, because the truth is we'll, we'll never, until we're in heaven, understand the, the depth of our sinfulness. We'll never understand the true greatness of God's perfection and holiness and the vast chasm. Between the two. But it is at least instructive for us to see here. That yes there is still more judgment needed. And the judgment that we deserve. Is sometimes beyond our understanding. And, and we, we sit here this morning as Christians. As those who recognize the judgment. That God should have given us. That God could have given us. But he gave us Christ. Part of what it means to be an unbeliever is to have not come to a recognition of the seriousness of sin. Of what sin deserves as the depth of sin and the web of sin and the layers of sin and the holiness of God. That is the grace of God. To change our hearts so that we see him as truly holy and we see ourselves for what we are. Pray to the Lord this morning if you're not a believer. 
Ask him to help you see that your problem is not just that you failed to be nice the other day. Or that every once in a while you tell a lie. Ask for God's grace that you would see the depth of your own depravity. And through that, that you would run to the only hope in life and death, the Lord Jesus Christ. That God would show you the depth of sin. But here we see the depth of sin for the Egyptians and Pharaoh. There is more judgment to come. And we know that that's going to happen at the Red Sea. As God's people cross through the sea and God brings the waters down upon the Egyptian army. Before today, we have Israel on the move. And that's the title for our sermon this morning, Israel on the Move. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read our sermon text, Exodus 13, verses 17 to 22. I should add that part of our job as parents is to help our kids through teaching and through discipline to see that they are sinners to understand that sin is in their hearts and that they need new hearts from God by the Holy Spirit through Christ. Exodus 13, verses 17 to 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness, Toward the Red Sea or the Yam Suf. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. (coughs) Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Atham on the edge of the wilderness And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. You can go ahead and be seated. This is the word of God. And let's pray that God would use his powerful word as a sword into our hearts to show us our sin, to purge sin from us, that God would use the word as the instrument, the surgical instrument that we all, all of us, every single one of us today, so desperately needs. Let's pray for his grace. (coughs) Father, we thank you that you've brought us together once again to worship you. We pray this would not just be uh, just another time, a familiar time gathered, going through the motions, thinking about all sorts of things, Lord, but that we would truly stop and be present here today. God, would you guide our minds as you guided your people, Israel? Would you guide our minds into the depths of your word? Would you help us to hear your voice, God? And would we be doers of what we hear? Father, would we be like the man who builds his house on the rock and not like the person who builds his house on the sand? Lord, would we be those who faithfully walk in accordance with all the indicatives of your word and those who recognize the grace of your commands. God, we thank you that we have each other. 
Lord, as we look around this morning, we, re- we realize it's not just us and our Bibles. It's not just me and my Bible and Christ, but it is me gathered, each of us, with the people of the living God. The people whom you so deeply care for, Lord. The people where, where neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor anything else in all creation, whatever it might be, could separate us from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we recognize the love you have for your people and the way that you intend to use your people in our lives. So, Father, we pray that we would not be little isolationists here today, but that we would truly be gathered with your people, that we would seek to be edified by your people, and that we would be a means of edification for others as well. God, help us to be both vertical and horizontal in that way as we gather to worship you this morning. Instruct us now from your word. Show us your glory. Show us what you require of us and the means that you use to help us. God, show us your compassion and your grace, your kindness, and what you have provided for us through Jesus and the hope that we have As Doug prayed earlier, Lord, that you have given us a great inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for us, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Father, we thank you that no one can snatch us out of your hand and no one can take our inheritance away from us. That the Holy Spirit himself has been given as a seal, as a guarantee of what is coming. Lord, we thank you that we are reminded of that today as we gather, and we pray that you would help us in uh, future Sundays, future Lord's Days, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Thank you, Lord, by your grace and providence that we've gathered here today. Would you work in each of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this description (coughs) of Israel on the move gives us three focal points. These are three things to occupy our attention this morning. You'll see those up there on the screen. The soldiers, the symbol, and the shepherd. So the soldiers, for that we'll see, uh, we'll look to verses 17 to 18. The symbol in verse 19. And then thirdly, the shepherd in verses 20 to 22. So let's begin with the soldiers. Verses 17 to 18. Israel on the move. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. In what manner did the Israelites leave Egypt? You know, this is a sight that I, I don't think we can really imagine. Uh, two to two and a half million people leaving with all these animals. Uh, it's a sight that just boggles the mind. It, it's something, as I said before, that you would really want to see from space. You'd want to get a Google image going as from, from the satellite. You'd want to come down and zo- zoom in on that and see what that would look like. But what manner did they leave in? Did they just start walking, this massive crowd just meandering around? What we see here is that the exodus was an orderly departure. We, we don't have the specifics. 
We don't have all of the details for how Moses and Aaron communicated with the elders and the way that the different tribes organized themselves and so forth. We, we just don't get any of that. But what we do get is a description here. We're told that it is an orderly departure. The Israelites went out like an army, like an army on the move. Of course, not everyone is uh, above the age of 20, a fighting male. But uh, as a whole, they are organized insofar as they can be like an army, God's army. And we know that because of this last sentence. It says, they went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle, or as one commentator translates it, they went up in military formation. The word itself suggests uh, an organized fashion. It, it, It doesn't really suggest being armed with weapons as much as it suggests the formation, the organization of the people and the way in which they move collectively together. They are organized like an army. God has constituted an army, (coughs) get this, from untrained slaves. Now, these are not people who've been gathered in their little camps training for battle. You think of maybe one of these gladiatorial arenas, these training grounds. Uh, Recently watched a documentary uh, of the training of gladiators in Rome. And uh, you have this uh, elaborate school where they're trained to fight. Or you think of a sort of a military base where there would be training for fighting. There's been no time for this. The Israelites have been slaves. They are not trained to fight in battle. They are slaves. And probably quite skinny, largely. Not beefed up. Muscular, probably quite skinny and not well trained. And I just want us to understand that this is God's way. This is God's way from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. God works through human weakness. God works through our frailty. Why does God do that? Why does God have Uh, All of this human weakness in the mix of his great works. Why does God choose to use weak vessels to carry out his great purposes? And the reason is really quite simple. And that is because all victory will be to his glory. All victory that Israel experienced was to be soli deo gloria. It was to be For the glory of God alone. To God's glory. That's the reason why God works in our weaknesses in the way that he does. Ask yourself, Christian. Why why am I so weak in this area? Why do I feel so frail in this area? Ask yourself about all the ways that you feel like you could be better. Things could be going better. You could be stronger. And you're just not. God will receive the glory when it is clear to us and to all that he did it. Not me. Not you. All victory will be to his glory. Isn't this the refrain that we read later? That God will fight for his people. That's the whole point. All that Israel will do, all the victories that Israel will have as an army will be because God fights for his people. The great image of that is Jericho. 
God is the one, not the strength of the people. The prophets will tell the people not to trust in chariots, not to trust in spears, but to trust in the living God, to trust in the Lord. It is for his glory, and it is often out of human weakness. This military language is something we've already seen with this word hosts. We've encountered this word a lot. The Israelites have been described various times as the hosts of the Lord. It's a military word. It means armies. You see, God is called the the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts. And that's a reference to God as the ruler and the commander of the angelic armies. The God of hosts hosts. Here we see the Israelites, or we've seen the Israelites described already as God's hosts. We read that in 1241. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts, all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. What an army, God! Yes, it is the army God has chosen. And of course we know what this language anticipates. All of this military language anticipates the conquest of Canaan. The judgment that God will pour out on the Canaanites by means of his people. You know, this is sometimes treated as a great embarrassment. Uh, the, The genocide of the Canaanites in the Old Testament. And scholars and apologists squirm around as though they have to somehow make a case for God. Uh, But somehow we don't feel as though we need to make a case for God in bringing the flood. This same God who used water, and I've said this before, who used water to destroy the entire world. All people. Except Noah and his family is the same God who instead of water or fire as with Sodom and Gomorrah, he used his armies. He used his hosts to carry out his judgment on the Canaanite people. And we read this in Genesis 15. This is what the Lord said to Abraham. He told Abraham that his people would be sojourners, his descendants would be sojourners in a land, but that God would bring them up. And then we have this little sentence here. It says this, And they shall come back here, that's Canaan, in the fourth generation, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Here's what that means. 430 plus years, because you got to go all the way back to the time of Abraham. Over five centuries before the Israelites will move into Canaan, God tells Abraham that the sin of the Canaanites is getting bigger And bigger and bigger. Deeper and deeper and deeper. More and more wicked. And that though the iniquity has not yet filled up. To the point you think of the two angels going to Sodom and Gomorrah. The iniquity had filled up to the brim and poured over. And you see all the men scratching at the door. That they might come in and know these two men. Every man to the very last man. We see in Sodom and Gomorrah. The same is true here with the Canaanites. The iniquity of the Amorites or the Canaanites in general. Has not yet reached its fill. But it will. And when it does. God will come in. With his hosts. With his armies. With Israel. 
and he will execute his judgment. We know that sins such as bestiality and child sacrifice were being practiced by the Canaanites and so many other things that we could point to. The iniquity of the Amorites is now almost complete. And so here they are, the armies of God, the means of God's judgment, the instrument of his wrath coming out of Egypt to go into Canaan. But just because they are constituted as an army and they will soon function as an army doesn't mean that they are mentally ready to see war. So what does the Lord do? He avoids taking them north straight into Canaan. If they see war with the Philistines, they will be tempted to turn back. They will want to go back to Egypt. (coughs) And this is exactly what happens later when the spies are sent into Canaan and most of them bring back a bad report. So here, here are the Israelites. They're leaving Egypt. And the quickest route into Canaan would be for them to just go north, go right along the Mediterranean Sea and go right into Canaan. Wouldn't take any time at all. But the Lord says that they will turn back. They will want to turn back to Egypt if he brings them into that land. And this is what we find later in Numbers 13, 31, when Moses sends the spies in. Uh, Many of you know this story. All the spies come back. There are two, Joshua and Caleb, who are uh, triumphant. They say, we can go in. God will give us the land. It's a great land. And the rest of the spies say, no, 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 no. We can't go in there. We can't face that enemy. We're too weak and they are too strong. And so we read this in Numbers 13, 31. Then the men who had gone up with him, that is Caleb, said this, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. Of course they are. But they're not stronger than the God of the Hebrews. They're not stronger than Yahweh. They're not stronger than the Lord. And then we read in Numbers 14, 4, and the people said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So when when it gets scary, when they realize that they're about to go into the land and there are these big people, these strong people there, maybe quite exaggerated, that are stronger than they are, they say, let us choose a new leader Forget this Moses guy. We need somebody else who's going to march us right back to Egyptian bondage. We would rather go back there than fall by the sword. Well, the Lord knows that's in their hearts. And so it says here that he protects his people from this at this early stage before the giving of the law, before all that God desires to accomplish He protects his people from this by taking them another way. Instead of this direct route north along the Mediterranean Sea from Egypt into Canaan, (coughs) verse 18 says, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now, I think this tells us a lot about the Lord. And all that we read in the Bible is meant to give us information about the Lord, that we might know him. It's not just about information But we need information. We need to know who God is, how he acts, what his character is, what his attributes are. And it's when we come to learn about God and and, and know about him that we grow in our knowledge of him intimately, personally. 
And what we see here is a demonstration of God's compassion. His consideration for his people. He sees their weaknesses and he does not lead them into a path that would compromise them. Do you see that? There's an opportunity here for them to be compromised as a people. For them to utterly fall away in mass. And God in his compassion, God in his consideration and sympathy and attentiveness to their weakness, he takes them another way. This is what we find in the New Testament as we think about the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And listen to this, Christian. Especially if you're here and you feel defeated and beat up, you feel as though you just have no power. You feel as though you just keep, are going to keep falling to these sins. God is faithful. Listen to this. And he will not let you Say that to yourself. He will not let me be tempted beyond my ability. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here's what I'm saying. The same God here who does not lead his people in this way because of their weakness is the God who sees All of our weaknesses. He sees our hearts. He sees our thoughts. He sees our ways before we even go. And we are told. That God in his faithfulness. Does not allow us to be tempted. Beyond your ability. So think about that. The next time you're tempted. The next time you fall to sin. Don't say to yourself. I I had no other way. I I just had to do it. Oh God I'm just so weak. Please forgive me. Help me. And then you do it again. Oh, God, I'm so weak. I just can't do it. Please forgive me. Help me. And you do it again. And you do it again. And you do it again. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of real confession and a life of true repentance and a life of trust in this faithful God who said these words. I'm not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, I Your heavenly father will provide the way of escape. Here's the problem. In those moments of temptation, we're not interested in the way of escape. That's the problem. Because we like it. We like our sin. We love our sin. And in that moment, it's not as though the devil comes along, the tempter comes along and just downloads something into us. Oh, robotically we follow. No, that's not how it works. As James 1 tells us, we are led away into sin by our own sinful fleshly desires. We sin because we love sin. It's in us. But the grace of God is that there is the new man. There is the inner being, the inner man who hates sin and loves God. And it's in that By the Spirit that we take hold of this way of escape. So let me just encourage you to do this. The next time you're tempted to sin, that same old sin, whatever it might be, ask yourself this question in that moment. What is the way of escape? Lord, what is the way of escape? God is faithful. God will provide. 
We recognize this also in how we pray. Matthew 6, 13, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. This is the model prayer, a template for all of our praying. And he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this is like what God was doing with the Israelites. He, he's leading them not in the temptation of falling away by going into Canaan through Philistine country. He's leading them not into temptation, but he is delivering them from evil. Praise God that he does this for us. And you know what's amazing? We, we don't have any idea how many times God has done this for us. All of us in this room would fall away from Christ if, we were, if it were up to us. We'd all fall away. We would have fallen away day one. We haven't. Why? Because in many ways, many of which are unseen, the Lord our God, even when we do not pray, Matthew 6, verse 13, he does not lead us into temptation, but delivers us from evil. God keeps his people. He protects us, and he protects us with an eye towards our weaknesses. This is a father. This is our heavenly father. So what is this way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea? Or in Hebrew, Yom Suf. What is this Red Sea? We will talk more about the site of the Red Sea in the coming weeks, but for now, let me just give you the route that I think the Israelites took. So, you guys can go ahead and put up that map. <coughs> this is a map put out by a geographer uh, who has done a lot of work on the Exodus route for decades. He's been working on this. His name is Glenn Fritz. And he has put together this map of the most likely path that the Israelites took when they left Goshen, when they left Egypt. And there you can see they're headed towards the way of the wilderness across the Sinai Peninsula towards Yom Suf. Yom Suf. And there's, a, I'll talk about this more later, but there's a, quite a bit of argument and debate as to how to translate Yom Suf, what exactly this body of water is. And many things have been proposed. The Gulf of Suez uh, is the traditional one that most people will point to. Lakes up in, Go, up in the Goshen area. And then, of course, the one I think is most probable is the, is the uh, Gulf of Aqaba, which we find over there in the Far East. My own view is that they traveled across the Sinai Peninsula and then went through the sea at the Gulf of Aqaba. Let me give you a quote. Now, this is a long quote, but I think it's helpful. Uh, From one commentator, Dwayne Garrett, as he reflects on the site of the sea crossing. Uh, And the reason I'm going to give you this quote is not so that you'll get all the details, but I want you to see how he, as a commentator on Exodus, uh, as someone who has written extensively on these topics, and, as, and also as a Hebrew grammarian, I want you to see how he argues that the site of the Red Sea, as it is traditionally understood or has been translated, uh, must be the Gulf of Aqaba. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to try to read it quickly, but I want you to see how he reasons, how he argues, the different things that he points to, and I want you to see his level of confidence in this conclusion. So here we go. One cannot get away from the fact that the Bible identifies only one body of water as the Yom Suf. So all the arguments aside, what is Yom Suf in the Bible when it's referred to? And he says, it is the Gulf of Aqaba. 1 Kings 9.26 says that Etzion Geber, the port of Solomon, was on the Yom Suf. 
and Etzion Geber is universally recognized to be at the north end of the Gulf of Aqaba. As indicated above, Exodus 13, 18 identifies the way of the wilderness, which goes toward Etzion Geber at the north end of the Gulf of Aqaba, as the way from Egypt toward the Yom Suf. Exodus 23, 31 describes the extent of greater Israel as from the Yom Suf, or the Gulf of Aqaba, Israel's north, uh, southeast corner, to the Sea of the Philistines, the bend of the Mediterranean near Gaza at Israel's southwest corner, and from the wilderness, Negev, south-central limit of Israel, to the Euphrates, northern limit of Israel. So he's, he's trying to show how the Bible geographically lays out the promised land, lays out the extent of Israel. One cannot possibly take the Yom Suf of Exodus 23:31 to be the Gulf of Suez, the Bala Lakes, or any other body of water in that vicinity. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1 says that after the failure at Kadesh Barnea, the Israelites went from there toward the Yom Suf and for a long time traveled around Mount Seir. The mention of Mount Seir can only mean that the Yom Suf was east or southeast of Kadesh Barnea. Also, Jeremiah 49, an oracle against Edom, refers to various locations associated with Edom. In verse 21, it says that the sound of Edom's calamity would be heard at the Yom Suf, being at the southern end of Edomite territory. The Gulf of Aqaba is plainly meant here. It is not a lake on the frontier of Egypt. The evidence is not ambiguous, and the Bible never suggests that more than one body of water is called Yom Suf. So I read that. Because if you watch various documentaries and so forth, you will see these views that what the Israelites crossed was some freshwater lake, often translated a sea of reeds here. We could talk a little bit more about that in weeks ahead. But that they crossed some freshwater lake up in the frontier of Egypt rather than one of these two bodies of water connected to the Red Sea in the south. What he is arguing here, which I think is the most cogent view, is that the Red Sea, or the Yam Suf, is the Gulf of Aqaba. So I won't say any more about that, uh, at least for today. But I think it is important for us as we think about the location of the Red Sea crossing. So you could go ahead and go back to our outline. And secondly, we're going to look at the symbols. So we've looked at the soldiers. Israel is constituted as an army. Now we're going to look at the symbol. Look at verse 19 with me. Verse 19, <clears throat> Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now here we have a reference back to Genesis chapter 50, verse 25, which Doug read to us earlier. Before Joseph died, he made his family swear an oath. An oath that they would not leave his bones, which would actually be mummified remains. Remember, both Jacob and Joseph were mummified. And Joseph made them promise that they would not leave his remains in Egypt, <coughs> but that his remains would be carried up from Egypt to the land of Canaan. And here we have Moses keeping that promise. Moses himself saw to the fulfillment of this oath. Now, this is interesting to me. 
It makes me wonder, how did this promise get passed down? Was it Joseph's descendants who kept hold of this oath and kept hold of this promise? And maybe Joseph's descendants were at Moses' door knocking. Oh, oh, don't forget the bones of Joseph. We've got to get the bones of Joseph. We don't know. But it seems as though Moses himself took responsibility for this because he saw this as an important task. These bones of Joseph here function as a symbol. This is not just Moses keeping a promise. God is providentially working through this oath and the fulfillment of this promise here among the Israelites and as we read it today. And I think... These bones function as a symbol of three things. And here they are, if you want to write them down. A symbol of connection, a symbol of faithfulness, and a symbol of faith. So first, Joseph's bones are a symbol of the connection that the Israelites have to the patriarchs. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. You remember at the very early point when they entered Egypt, it was Jacob and his 12 sons. Jacob, of course, the grandson of Abraham. There have been centuries of distance and the experience of the patriarchs has been covered over by long years of brutal slavery. Undoubtedly, the stories of what happened with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been forgotten by many. Those old days. I mean, just imagine if we were to go back 430 years in our own history, how much would be covered over? How much would be on a shelf somewhere just having collected so much dust that it's essentially disappeared. Here we find these bones connecting the people back to those early days. Now they are coming out. Now they are going to inherit what God had promised to the patriarchs. So these bones function to link the people back with their heritage, back to their identity as God's people of promise. So first they're a symbol of connection. Second, And united to the first, Joseph's bones are a symbol of faithfulness. Many years before, Joseph had said, God will surely visit you. And now the Israelites are experiencing the fulfillment. Joseph said, God is going to be faithful. God is going to come. He's going to deliver his people just as he promised Abraham, my great-grandfather. God will surely visit visit you. They are witnessing God's faithfulness to his promises. And the God who was faithful to their forefathers will also be faithful to them. So I I can imagine that the procession surrounding these bones, we don't know how they were carried or where they were carried. Maybe it was Joseph's descendants who carried them. Maybe Moses and Aaron carried them themselves. But whatever happened, I think we ought to recognize here that these bones are a visual, vivid reminder, a symbol for the people as they leave Egypt that God is faithful. He was faithful then. He's bringing to pass what Joseph said, and he will be faithful now and into the future. Third, Joseph's bones are a symbol of faith. Listen to Joseph's words again. God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Notice Joseph's language. It is not a matter of if 
but when God will most certainly do what he has promised, said Joseph. And so by faith, he makes his brothers swear. By faith, Jacob asked to be buried back in Canaan. And so we remember uh, how they brought Jacob's body back, this large procession that Pharaoh himself had overseen. They bring Jacob's bones back, or they bring Jacob's body back to Canaan. Joseph here, in the same way, by faith, made his brother solemnly swear that they would bring his bones out of Egypt when God visited them and brought them into the land of Canaan. What we need to see here is that this is an act of trust. It counts God's promises regarding the future as certain. It takes hold of them and acts on them now in the present. You know, definitions of faith are really helpful. And we see that throughout Scripture. But you know what really helps us as we think about the whole biblical story is is these narratives. These narratives of faith. And that's the reason why Hebrews 11 gives us all of these instances, these examples, these illustrations of faith in action. Faith is never just this mere mere intellectual ascent. Maybe you're here this morning you say, I have faith. I have faith in God. Well, understand this. Faith is not just sort of coming to a reasoned conclusion that there is a God. Or for that matter, coming to a reasoned conclusion here in your skull that Jesus died on the cross and that God raised him on the third day. Mere intellectual assent to propositional truth is not biblical faith. That's not biblical faith at all. Biblical faith is what we see with Joseph. Biblical faith acts now in the present as though the promised thing out in the future is already right in front of me. My hands are on it. I can feel it. I can smell it. I can taste it. It is as good as here because it comes from the mouth of God. That's faith. And what we see in Hebrews 11.1 1, is a definition of this illustration. It defines it. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Joseph didn't see a nation. Joseph didn't see a large people. He didn't see them coming out of Egypt. But it is as though he did see it with eyes of faith. We live by faith and not by sight. So let me ask you here this morning, are you a Christian? Do you have faith? Are you a believer? This is what it means to be a believer. Not to just read a book and come to a conclusion and think you're good. Or pray a prayer and think you're good. Faith is living out of assured realities that you have taken hold of by God's grace. Working in us by his spirit. To live now in light of unshakable future realities. That is biblical faith. So here they are. Leaving Egypt with Joseph's bones, united to the patriarchs, mindful of God's faithfulness after all these years, 
and called to the same kind of faith that their forefathers had. This is what it will look like for them to be the people of God. These bones are a moving symbol of what they must be as God's people. They must trust him. They must trust him for the future, just as their forefather, Joseph. Thirdly, let's look at the shepherd. We've seen the soldiers, the symbol. And now as we close this morning, let's look at the shepherd. Verses 20 to 22. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Atham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Did not depart from before the people. <clears throat> well, if two and a half million people leaving Egypt is an amazing sight. How much more is this that we're reading here? An amazing sight. I think all of us sort of wish we could have been there. And then maybe sort of don't. (laughs) But what an amazing picture this would have been to see God's people moving in this way. From the very beginning of this passage, our larger passage for today, we've seen one overarching emphasis. God is leading his people. I thought about entitling the sermon led by the Lord, uh, but then I thought, well, the, the, the general movement here of the people, I think, is what is most in view as we look at it in these various ways. But, but at the core of the movement of the people is that they are led by the Lord. God is leading his people. Verses 17 to 18, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. You drop down a little ways, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness Toward the Red Sea. God is their leader. They follow and he guides and provides. But this image of God leading his people. Of God a shepherd to his people. Is brought into the clearest focus we could get. With these verses about the cloud and the fire. As they move from Sukkoth to Atham and beyond. We are told here that God leads them with a pillar of cloud. Now it is one pillar. It's not two separate pillars. Not one pillar that shows up during daytime and then the sun goes down. That pillar goes away and another pillar (coughs) comes. It is one pillar as Exodus 14, 24 tells us. It calls it the pillar of fire and of cloud. So one pillar of cloud with fire in it. A cloud with fire that is seen by night. It guides during the day and it adds light at night. And the purpose here is given that they might travel by day and by night. Uh, Just incredible strength that the Lord would have given his people. I mean, you think about the fact that there are kids. There are older people. There are probably some sick people. Undoubtedly some sick people. All sorts of animals, some faster than others. And God has 
worked in all kinds of ways. I, mean, I think if we, were to, if we were to drop down on this event, we would see so many ways that we're not even told about, so many ways that God's providence was at work to organize the people, to mobilize the people, to move them through on their journey to Sinai. He moves them during day and during the night. And Psalm 105 verse 39 says that he spread a cloud for a covering and the fire to give light by night. So this suggests that the cloud also had a a purpose of covering them from the sun. So the cloud plays a role in protecting his people from being burnt up by the sun. Then we are told at the end of the passage that the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. In other words, it was dependable. It was not something that they woke up every morning and had to wonder about. Will the cloud be there today? Is it going to show up tonight? Are we going to see the fire tonight? Will God lead us today? No. It was certain. It was dependable. The people could count on it. They knew that God would not leave them. But the most important thing to notice about this cloud and fire is that it is not merely something given to the people. Let me make that clear. It's not as though uh, there's the Lord and then there's God's gift, this, this cloud ball, whatever it would have been, this cloud pillar, this cloud covering, whatever that would have looked like, that it is something that God gave to them outside of himself, if you will. God doesn't just give them the pillar. The text says that God manifested himself to the people in this way. This was God's way of being present with them. Verse 21, listen to what it says. And the Lord went before them. The Lord himself went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. This is the very presence of God. This is God with us. This is God with his people. And he gives them this visual to show them that they are not alone, to show them that they're not just out there wandering around, that they're not just now free from slavery, but now they have to figure it out on on their own. They've got to come up with a plan. They've got to figure out an itinerary. They've got to pull the elders together with Moses and Aaron and say, what now? Over four centuries, we've been slaves in Egypt. What do we do now? None of that. We are told here that the Lord himself in the pillar of cloud, in the pillar of fire is leading them. This cloud and fire reminds us of the assurance that we have as Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says these words to his disciples before he goes up into the clouds, before Jesus leaves his disciples and ascends into heaven, passes through the heavens and sits down at the right hand of the Father until he returns. Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. He doesn't say, I will give something. Now he will send the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ. And Christ is present by his Spirit, 
We know that is how he is present. But he doesn't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a thing. And that's going to lead you and guide you that you can depend on. No, he says, I myself will be with you. Christ is with you, Christian. He's present even more than that cloud. When they woke up in the morning, little kids probably went outside. Is the cloud here? The cloud's here. And at night, the fire, always there in the same way, Christian. Do you believe this? You really believe this in the same way and even more imminently and internally, God himself through Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ, is always present with you. No matter how you feel, no matter how unfaithful you are, no matter how lazy you get, no matter how much you neglect his word, he is faithful. He's present. He's with us. And he's there now for us to call upon him this morning. To call upon the name of the Lord. As we come forward and partake of the Lord's Supper. To call upon the name of Christ Jesus. To come forward giving thanks to the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. To partake of this symbol of his body and his blood as a reminder of what he did for us then and what he does for us now and what he will do for us one day when he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence with your people. We thank you that you guide us, you lead us, and you lead us by the way of your own choosing. You lead us in your wisdom, away from situations in which we would crumble. You deliver us from evil. You lead us not into temptation. You are a kind father. Lord, none of us who is a father uh, understands what it means to be a perfect father. We did not have perfect fathers. We're not perfect fathers. Our children will not grow up to be perfect fathers. But Lord, you, (coughs) you are the perfect father. And you lovingly guide as shepherd your people. We thank you for these pictures, these things that are meant to instruct us. As Paul says in Romans 15, 4, these are for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God, would we take hope this morning? Would we take heart? Would our hearts be filled with hope as we consider your compassion and consideration? As we consider your presence, as we consider your deliverance, your faithfulness. And the life of faith that you call us to have. God, we thank you for these precious words that we've heard this morning from the Bible. We thank you for what your spirit does with them. And we pray that the remainder of this day and this week that we would continue to be fed by your word. I pray for the groups as we all meet this week, Lord, that these words would be massaged into the nooks and crannies of our hearts. Lord, that we would trust in you. And that we would truly live a life of faith. Taking hold of those promises as though they are now. Though we cannot see them. We believe in hope. We believe against hope. Just as Abraham, our forefather, trusted you. Lord, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.